0: I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick with a Point. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to A Stick with a Point. I'm delighted that today my guest is a very special person and also somebody I've known for a very long time. Uh, His name is Bruno Price and he's a partner of rare violins of new york so bruno welcome
1: thank you thanks for having me um, been looking forward to this for a while now
0: well that's uh, that's nice to hear bruno and uh, i'm gonna pick your brains as far as i can about everything you know about violins and why you're involved in the string instruments business trade whatever you want to call it but perhaps you'll start with a few biographical stories about yourself. I mean, you're obviously not from the States, like myself. So where do you come from and how did you get into this?
1: So originally from South Wales. I think my whole early years was avoiding going to London. Studied in Manchester and then came to study with the Vermeer Quartet. And Mark Johnson was the cellist. Quite extraordinary. If I had known that I would talk my way into the American Education system and uh, they wouldn't give me the bit of paper I needed for my visa because I didn't have all the SAT scores etc and I told them that my education was similar and I literally talked my way into grad school without a bachelor's degree and somebody should have said right there and then that I was going to end up in sales (laughs) But um, anyway, but I didn't, I didn't believe that. So um, I got a master's degree in performance and decided I wanted to stay. And it was a very unexpected visit to a violin shop in Chicago that basically changed my life. And uh, you may remember this violin teacher from high school, Drew Lecker, an American guy who was so cool, we thought in those days um disappeared went back to america and didn't see him didn't hear from him and one day i walked into the shop in chicago and there he was standing behind the counter and i got to know him over the next couple of years and played chamber music and day i got my degree he called and said we need a cellist here talked me into it so that was that he in the work. store
0: was it that was actually in the dealers yeah. cellist in the dealers yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because you've alluded to the fact there, Bruno, that that you and I went to high school together. So full disclosure on that one. Um, And I have to say that I never imagined that you would end up in this sort of business because you really were a tremendous cellist. I'm sure you still are a tremendous cellist, a very fine musician. And uh, you played in in lots of uh, very exciting projects and orchestras. And I thought that was the way you were going to go. Um, Mm. So when I realized that you were in this side of the business it was a complete surprise but it was as simple as that drew lecker said we need a cellist in this dealership
1: and and we'll work out your visa Ding. Ah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> my my ex-wife still believes that i married her for the green card but that was not the case well tell me though bruno that that's
0: fine to say that you you went to to work there but uh, we all know that your business demands a, a great deal of of expertise um so how do you acquire that that expertise i mean it's expertise of both the market and also of the instruments and the quality instruments quality of the instruments mm. how did you acquire that is it simply by by hands-on experience or did you did you start to study earnestly
1: uh, i think time really is what. You have to study. There's no choice about that. But it's been 35 years. I still feel I've got a lot to learn. And I think anybody who thinks they know everything is probably a dangerous person in this business. But my my first boss was really brilliant and was one of the best experts there has ever been. Maybe number three all time. Let's put it that way. And when I sat down with him and told him I was leaving to move to New York... Uh, he was shocked he said why why would you want to leave and I said I actually want to learn more um, and a sales position at that at that shop didn't didn't lend itself to learning because his opinion was the one that mattered whether I agreed or not and I was frustrated that he wouldn't share his knowledge and so this was 1994-95. That was just about the time when people started using computers. Sending pictures by email or downloading pictures was unheard of. The books that existed were very few and far between. And when I think back, one of the the books that people relied on the most, I think every colleague I have has a copy of that book with yellow tabs sticking out of all the pictures that are fake or not right. Mm. um, Because we've learned more. And I think having the flexibility of expertise is is critical, and even now that we're introducing dendrochronology, a study of the the growth, the, the tree growth on the tops of the instruments, because you can't really do very much for the maple on the back of the violins, but for the spruce, you can get a sense of very clearly the change in the the growth of the rings. And with the databases now, they can actually tell you when a tree was cut down. So it doesn't help you to know who made the instrument, but it tells you that the instrument was made after a certain point.
0: That's like looking at a picture from the Renaissance and being able to tell what sort of paint it is and and say, yes, it comes from that period. But I can see on this video in the background, you've got a, a set of violins hanging up there. And I'm pretty sure you could just take them down without much thought, look at them and say where they come from and then home in on where they were actually made and who made them. So how do you acquire that? What do you look for? You, you look. You get a violin and they all look the same to me. They've got these funny old holes on the side and, um, and four strings and a black fingerboard and a scrolly bit at the top. Same for most people, what do you focus on? Okay,
1: but it's like listening to a recording and you know immediately, oh, that's that's the Philadelphia Orchestra with Ormandy conducting. Or, you know, you can tell a you know, Carrion recording, you can tell Furtwängler, you can tell, try and explain that to somebody. But somebody who is passionate and who wants to know will notice little differences of balance and orchestration and, and things. And it's, it's the same with an instrument. You suddenly start seeing, you know, the first thing you do, you look at the face of the violin, the two sound holes, and you notice that that's different from that one. Huh. Oh, well, it was made in a different city. And it starts that way. And I think that it develops from there. And the exciting things that have happened in the last 20 years is that... Um, People have really been studying not just what the maker did, but how he did it. And for that reason, the preservation of the great instruments is so, so, so essential uh, because we need to be able to see what these makers did in the past and how they did things. And so there are lots of little areas of an instrument that one looks at. The scrolls are all different. And... I had one boss at one time who would say, well, we weren't there when he made this, and he might have just drunk too much that day. Lots of things in this business have been done to justify being able to make money, and that's that's dangerous. Very, well, very that's, dangerous.
0: that's an interesting point, because uh, it's not a business, an industry that's really renowned for its integrity um certainly the 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 stories and rumors that (laughs) come on now bruno let's be honest about it okay no
1: yes you're right completely right except that you can take any business in the world and you can pick out proportionately many more unscrupulous uh criminals the only difference is we're dealing with people's emotions we're dealing with musicians who don't have the money they need to buy instruments that they deserve or should have. And so it, it's it just hurts more that's it. Mm. Um, but I think one of the, the most fascinating things and it, it, it all it all ties in in the end somehow but even when it comes to learning about who the makers were, if you think about the history of the violin, we don't really know who exactly invented it, but if we figure that around 1560 in Cremona, town in, in Italy, just very near to Milan, that was the town where all the greatest instruments ever, the best instruments were made in that town. We can all fight about the reason for that. But from 1560, 1600, the Amati family were the family that were making the best instruments. And they had an international reputation the question of course is why and we think of the spread of music the the fact that the the center of music was changing and moving and people in france wanted to have nice instruments and they all heard that these violins from cremona were the best and so Really, um, everybody wanted to have an Amati because it was by far the best instrument. The first lawsuit, since we're talking about
0: <laughs> integrity, <laughs> uh,
1: yes, I think it was 16, 1686, I believe. And um, it was one of Amati's students. So backing up very quickly, the plague 1630s wiped out almost every violin maker in Northern Italy. A little town nearby Brescia, they all died in 1630. In Cremona, 1630 to 32, yeah, that was it. But Niccolò Amati survived and he took on whoever was left in the family and they still had some orders because his father and his uncle had had such a great business and he needed help. So he hired some young guys to help him out. And of course, they learned very quickly. So you had Andrea Guarneri, the Guarneri family, who ultimately you got Guarneri del Gesù two generations later. And supposedly Stradivari, although I don't think, necessarily learned everything from Amati um, and rugeri Now, rugeri was the guy who in 1686, I think it was, made a violin and sent it off to its next owner. And he put a la- an Amati label on top of his because he could get three times as much. And the label came out. Uh, and there we are. <laughs> that says it. So, and so basically from that point onwards, uh, it was pretty clear that for people who didn't know, you put a label on it, a musician's happy, and that's it. And fast-forwarding a little bit, people were making instruments. We think of people copying Stradivari and copying Guarneri, but that really didn't start until the early 1800s. So another 50 60 years later that Stradivari was it was understood okay, he was the best. So um, it it was really that the move to to France to have Paris as the center of music became a, a big move with music generally. And I know one of your questions will end up being value of instruments and how these instruments, why are they worth what they're worth. But if you think from the very beginning, instruments were following the money you've got makers in paris starting to copy dealers bringing more instruments out of italy dealers and makers but really the violin dealer as a as an entity didn't really start until really the end of the 19th century early 20th century and this is where our problems as dealers really begin because musicians claimed and i think they're probably right that the best instruments were from cremona and they all looked beautiful they sounded in unbelievably good and everybody wants to copy them and all of a sudden you got these cellos now cellos are a problem as we all know because they were too big to start with most of the great old ones were cut down in size but there are some fantastic sounding instruments also made around 1700 1720 but they came from Venice and many of them were not labeled. How could they sound so good? They should be from Cremona. <laughs> so, invariably, what happened was because they were too big, they often got then reduced in size. Makers like Montagnana, Gufrilla, they often had the sound holes quite wide apart. So, you know, brilliant repairmen <clears throat> would cut them down the middle and make them smaller. Oh,
0: hold on, hold on! Explain this then. So, when something is cut down, and what you mean by that is the body of the instrument is made smaller for the
1: uninitiated, yeah? Is that Prim- what you're primarily? Yes, primarily cellos and violas. Yes.
0: And so they would take timber out from the middle, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: isn't that called a, a cut and shunt in the car trade world? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: something like that. Uh, well, so you, I, you remember I, uh, when we we, we you know, we always heard about oh, Casals had this fantastic ch- cello. When he bought his cello, it was supposedly, it, and it's still labeled Bergonzi because that's from Cremona. Cremona, those are the best instruments. And it's somewhat of a rough, very rough Cremonese outline. But as time went on, he would start, he started to call it his Bergonzi Goffrilla, and then Goffrilla Bergonzi. And now, of course, everyone knows it as Goffrilla. But that one had quite a bit of wood taken from the middle.
0: Wow. Well, wow. it's that's an amazing skill, isn't it? Because you look down the center of a violin, of a cello, and the ability to actually join timber so perfectly and, and then create a structure that is so um, robust and so strong with enormous forces happening on yes. it. It's a fascinating uh, skill set. Uh, but I want to go back a little bit in what you're saying now and ask you so the hierarchy of prestige amongst violins let's say mm-hmm. is it contrived or is it based on principles i mean it's a little bit like like art isn't it um renaissance art you, you you'd look at you'd look at michelangelo and and um all the artists of that ilk and then there are the the uh, the next tier of artists beneath them the same with dutch art everybody wants a vermeer or a rembrandt And then there are countless artists producing wonderful work beneath them. Uh, How does the hierarchy get established with violins? Because sometimes you hear a Begonzi violin, for example. You think, oh, my God, that's the most amazing sound I've ever heard. Um, But you might not think of it that way. So how is it established?
1: No, it's um, it's really quite the opposite in the same. I, I like to look at parallels with players. And you can think of the very best players on the planet, and they are not famous because they made one good performance. Shmuel Ashkenazi once said, said, you know, we don't practice to make our best concerts great. We practice so that the worst concerts are still really great, and people want us back." So it's it's the same with makers. The the reason Stradivari is so revered is because even his worst violins ones that have been run over by a truck pieced together the frankenstein of all instruments they still sound better than almost anything else now you're going to say but i heard one that doesn't and i would say well bring it to our shop let's just at least set it up right again it's it's the thought that we because we're the dealers, we're the ones who decide this. It's not, it's the players. It's it's the demand from the player side. And to take an analogy that I think I heard brilliantly done by with, with James Ennis, and he was, he likes to compare Stradivaris with Formula One race cars. I don't know if he's raced a Formula One car, but I think of those drivers with incredible talent where their reactions happen in fractions hundreds of a second and yes they can drive your car or my car better than we can and but they're bored out of their minds and what they can do can only be done on a track at 180 miles an hour in the wet when blind by rain and it's the same with with really great instruments. We have a Strad cello in the shop at the moment. My brother can't believe that I don't practice on it every day. And I try to explain that I can play it and and people say I can pull a good sound, but what it tells me is go home, practice, (laughs) come back when you know what you're doing, because it reacts so fast. You hear everything if you, if you're really listening. And I think, That's part of what this is about. The better the player, the more demanding the player. And actually one really lovely story when James Ennis was, uh, last time he stopped by, I showed him a violin that I knew he absolutely loved. He basically played it two days nonstop. Um, And Charles Beer, who's probably the greatest expert, certainly of this last century, had actually told him he shouldn't buy it. And... That puzzled me a little bit. And he came and he spent three hours here with friends. He went back and forth and in every case, every excerpt that he played, his violin sounded okay. The other one sounded unbelievable. And his friends just kept saying, just there's no question, he just had to get it. But it still bugged me that I knew that Charles had said he shouldn't do it. And right at the very end, James said, Watched this. And he took his violin and played it as a student might. Slightly out of tune, weird vibrato, and it sounded really horrible. It sounded so horrible. And then he did it on our violin, and it still sounded beautiful. <laughs> and he said, you see, that's the reason why I can't get it, because I've become lazy. So... I thought, okay. And a few weeks later, I saw Charles Beer again. I told him what we what we we did and what, what James had said. And he said, you know, one of the saddest moments in his life was when Jacqueline Dupre came to him and said, Charles, I really would like a cello that's easier to play. And Charles said that was the moment he knew that her multiple sclerosis had got to the point where it was it was coming toward to the end, and it was really it's so so sad for him. So so going back to whatever the question really might have. I have been, no idea
0: was, at this point, but I, I'm fascinated <laughs> by what you're telling us.
1: <laughs> but it's it it does come down to the demand from the player, and I, I don't know about you. I, I I really long for going to a concert to hear. Something unbelievably good that we talk about forever. And I keep thinking that it doesn't always have to be the greatest players, the greatest performances, but when they happen. Um do you remember? There <laughs> we go. Do you remember there was that we did that one concert in the cathedral at, at Wells? It was Talis Fantasia. Yeah, you see? Yeah. And yeah. and the sound just came from nowhere and there yeah. were some sponsors or some people were coming to see the school and i'm sure they're still talking about that because hey we are I mean, yeah. it
0: just well i knew exactly what you were talking about and we hadn't mentioned it we haven't mentioned it for yeah. uh, 45 years well, yeah. Yeah. Long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i know what you're saying okay now look let's go back a little bit here because uh, you yep. just said about james ennis deciding not to buy this violin If James Ennis can afford to buy one of those violins, he's doing really rather well. But tell us the truth. Who buys great instruments and why?
1: Well, these days there's been a push from people to look at them as investments. There are some wealthy people that want to put their money somewhere else. People are putting it in artwork that you and I wouldn't put on our walls. And probably they don't either.
0: Well, that must increase the value of instruments once the... the, uh unattainable instruments are all gone then it it must drag up the rest of that hierarchy we were were talking about and prices go up yeah
1: and that's and that's really all it is Uh. um so so when it comes down to what gives an instrument any its actual value uh you have to basically look at just simply who made it and in the case of stradivari or guanari del jesu when they made it so stradivari's best his golden period, what they call it, was he was in his 60s when that came. So hmm. He only hit his best period when most people would be thinking of, well, not in those days, but retirement. And it's a 10, 15 year period, which is extraordinary. With Guarneri del Cies, it was really the last five years of his life. Wow. But those instruments stand out from all the others. So if you get one of those that's in really, really, really great condition, that has got very few repairs, and if one of them has got a famous name or two attached to it. So what's
0: the going rate these days for for one of these golden period strads? If I wandered in off the street with my checkbook in hand and I said, give me your best, Bruno, what have you got?
1: Uh, We've got a few juicy things here. (laughs) I'd say the really best instruments are 22... To 24 million plus. Holy, yeah, right.
0: I think that's doubled since we last talked about this a few years ago. Okay, so how does the how does the global economy and and fluctuations in that af- affect your business?
1: Well, so yeah, going back to the following the money, um, from the very beginning, instruments disappeared out of Italy. Then, beginning of the 20th century. Most of the really great instruments seem to come over here. Mm. There were people buying, amateurs who were buying Stradivari's, which is a common thing. The next market that opened towards the end of the 20th century, of course, was Asia. So Japan and Korea. We then thought that China would be the next place. Funny story, okay. So we sold the first, officially, the first Stradivari violin into china and it was quite funny really because the chap came in and he really talked about other instruments and in the end we found out that he was he liked us because we didn't say bad things about other people's instruments but the way i look at it an instrument is good or it's not good doesn't matter who's offering it anyway he want he swore us to secrecy that he was buying this violin which you know we tend to not Tell people these things anyway. The next day, I got a call from my good friend, the first violinist of the Shanghai Quartet, Wei Gang Li, and he said, "Bruno, I just heard that Grumio's strats just got sold to a chap in China. Is that true?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> um, he said, "I thought you had it." I said, "Yes, we did." And and the sale actually, we arranged the sale directly between the buyer and the seller. I mean, it was it was very open. Um, and he said, well, there are three violin makers in China who claim that they sold it. Oh. <laughs> so, why, why would they do that? Because they, they want some sort of recognition. They want uh-huh. to. Um, and so, first of all, the reason why this chap bought it because he's not a very good player. He played when he was very young and promised himself that one day if he became successful, he'd buy himself a really good violin. But there are good violins on the market. And what made this one more special? Well, okay, for me, it's those recordings that Arthur Grumio did of Bach and and Partitus, which was on this particular violin. Right. And it's, it's a violin that is so, the sound is so pure, And it's so sunny. Anyway, none of that mattered. Well, I guess it did a little bit, but the thing that took it over the edge was that one track from the Grumio's recording was sent up into space with Voyager. Uh. And that's what did it for this guy. (laughs) So there's always something that will will trigger, uh, yeah, a sale, whether Mm. it happens or not. Mm. Is it always
0: individuals who buy them, though? Or do institutions invest in them as well? These days,
1: yeah. These days, it's more and more institutions.
0: And Um, do they lend them out to deserving players? Some do.
1: um, And some ought not to. Ah. uh, Because we're living in a time when the the quality of players is, is... increased so much. And there are people that are playing these instruments that really are not responsible, and they probably shouldn't be playing them. Um, this this gentleman in China, his hope was that all his friends would then buy Stradivari's and Guarneri's and mm. it would raise his investment or whatever. Um, and He was quite upset that people didn't.
0: There must have been a lot of trade with Russia over the last decade or so. I imagine that's all dried up at the moment.
1: Yes, yes, very much so. Um, they had their own way. Well, it was primarily... Um, I think it primarily started because Gergiev had one guy who wanted to sponsor an opera. It was going to be one performance, and it just it didn't seem... Much. To make much sense to him and so he said well instead of spending a few million dollars on this why don't you just buy a violin because after the performance you'll still have a violin probably going to go up in value over time and there is an appreciation there is a cultural um, understanding of music over there that they know that you can't do much better than a, a really good Stradivari and so yeah there's one of the, be- well, the best collection of instruments in this country was um, in Seattle the last 25, 30 years. Most of those instruments are now in, in Russia. Mm. I know I won't see them again. And
0: it's it's quite sad, really. Rare Violins of New York is more than just a a vault full of instruments, isn't it? Tell us a little bit more about your business. You don't just... Stand there in a smart suit, looking out of the window in Manhattan, waiting for somebody to come in and and buy a Strad off you. What else goes on there?
1: Well, um, yes, I I have to say, if those instruments stayed in the vault, we'd go out of business very quickly. So Mm. it is a matter of finding them new homes. And I would love to say that I own them all. But these days, the majority of the major instruments that are sold are brokered basically we we sell them on consignment the one thing that happens we we just got a cello now one of the one of the great cellos on the planet and it's been played for the last 60 years by the same person who I don't think if he ever went to a real shop in that whole time and i try to explain to the family that this is going to take maybe 6 months to a year just to put it back into good shape and that it's our responsibility to put it into good shape because one of the things i try and impress on all young people is that we don't own these instruments we are the guardians of these instruments and and the way it should be done is that we should leave the instruments to the next person in the same condition as we got them Mm -hmm. was close you have a
0: great team there don't you that 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 you have working on instruments So how many guys are working there?
1: Uh, In the workshop, we've now got five, which is costly in Manhattan, (laughs) but, (laughs) but they're great. And when we started our business, we had a third partner who I had worked with in Chicago, fantastic restorer. We parted ways in 2007, but the two guys he had trained were really, really, really great. The only thing that... They didn't have much experience with at that point was actually making the decisions. The quality of the work is fine. And when you have strict rules of you never do something that you can't undo, you never touch anything that the maker himself did, it becomes very simple. Um, it means that sometimes a job might take longer than you would otherwise want. Early on, there was one day the head of our shop, Tatsu Imaishi, was, he came in totally depressed, and I said, what's going on? He said, well, that violin you showed me yesterday was a, one of the greatest strats. That repair on the top, he said, I don't think I could do that. I said, well, stop for one second. First of all, one, you could actually see it, because most people couldn't even see it. There's no hope of being able to do it if you can't actually see what you're doing. And I have to say now, yes, he can, he can easily do that level of work. One of the interesting sides of our business um, developed, it started just before COVID. Timing was not great. And it came about really because, I guess, it, it hit the news that there was a violin that had been stolen in 1980 uh, from Roman Totenberg, Stradivari went missing, and soon after he passed away, we sold his other violin. And the family, Nina Totenberg from NPR, was one of the daughters. They, the the daughters, gave us all the old certificates on this Stradivari, saying, "Well, one day it might show up." And of course, the chances of that was zero, basically. But lo and behold, a few years later, the violin did show up. The guy who had stolen it, who was the person that everybody suspected, um, had died. And this chap's ex-wife called and said she had a violin. The dealer gave her the good news that it was a Stradivari and the bad news that it had been stolen. And anyway, so we were asked to do the restoration of the violin and put it back into circulation. and. The Totenberg family wanted us to find an owner that would loan it out. They were really wanting to hear their dad's old violin again. And that was a bit more challenging than, than we expected. But we did succeed. And in order to make it all work, we put together In Consortium, which really is it's a program where uh, we get to loan instruments out to mostly young people. I say mostly, Uh, I think Gil Shaham is one of the latest. (laughs) He's no longer young. But anyway, the the man who who bought the Strad didn't want to have to be dealing with all the ins and outs of insurance, who's going to look after the instrument. and, And what we found out was that grouping a number of instruments together would get insurance rates a lot lower. I don't know why, but anyway, it was an incentive to then find people who had instruments that were just lying around that might want to actually have them play, or played, and have us look after the instruments. And we're the ones that go-betweens. We're the ones who have to tell the player, unfortunately, it's time to give it back, whatever. And it took off really quickly, and then COVID happened, and of course everything stopped. But we're getting going again, and it's an essential thing. I, I think when we started it, a number of our other colleagues realised that yes, you can view it as a way of trying to to sell instruments, but you know it, this isn't promoting instruments as an investment because. This is something to help musicians play on great instruments for a nice period of time. Yes, with Gil Shaham, yes, yes, he has his his own great violin. But even the very best players from time to time need need an injection of energy, of change of scenery or something. And for him, he played a few notes on this great 1719 Strad and realized that there was so much more that he'd never experienced anything like that. And so we arranged for him to borrow the violin. He said he hadn't practiced so much for years. So, you know, it, it's a good thing.
0: Is there ever an option for, for ownership for the, for the players of these instruments or is it always part of essentially a loan scheme?
1: Um, at this point, it's just the loan scheme. Although, uh, like with Nathan Meltzer, who was the first recipient of the Ames, the Totenberg Stradivari, he had it for two and a half years. We're now trying to to get a Guadagnini for him that ultimately he ought to own. Hmm. and And part of the... Um, the, the potential sponsor that is hopefully will help him. I think part of the the feeling that it's a good thing to do is the sense that maybe he will be able to buy it from him over time. In the end, the investment side of it is secondary. Hmm. Well, there are two
0: so. questions that come to mind from that. The, the first is, what sort of value ballpark figure do you put on a Guaranini these days? And the other question is, would you actually encourage people, advise people to invest in violins? I know you're selling instruments, so there's a, an element of, of, uh, of uh, a given there. But in terms of an investment, how do they do?
1: Oh, well, in terms of investment, in the long run, they're very, very, very good. Hmm. Uh, what people overlook is the fact that they do have to sell to change hands to actually make the investment real. And that can take time? It can. Um, there can
0: only be so be many people in the world that are looking to buy these instruments.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And even though there are very few of them, people are very conscious of the, their values. And so everybody wants to have at least 30-40% more than it may be worth today. But that's what keeps the market going upwards.
0: Um, and the ballpark for the Guadagnini?
1: Um, in the $2 million range. So it's...
0: I'm not on mute. I'm just taking, taking in uh, <laughs> there.
1: Guadagnini's used to be considered the poor man's Strad. And uh, we have one colleague in London who seems to think that the best of the Guadagnini's ought to be the same price as uh, the cheapest Strad. Which today is going to be three and a half, four million dollars. And yeah, it's it's a lot of money. In terms of an investment in an instrument, it's it's a long-term investment and should be considered that way. And like with any investment, it it depends on how well you buy and how well you sell. There is a friend of ours who was a banker who managed to buy some violins. At the time, everybody thought that they were really pushing the highest end of the the market, but he was able to finance them. So he actually put very little money down. And over the next 10 years, the violin doubled in price. Actually, in his case, more than doubled. Um, And he hadn't paid anywhere near even half of the loan back, probably. so for him, it was a, it turned out to be an incredible investment. The people who have done this in the past and probably in the future will all have some passion that goes way beyond just the numbers. And I'll never forget the, the guy who bought the violin for Gil Shaham in the, his first violin. Actually, the violin he owns now was part of the Strad Society and the man was just... Uh, He was a businessman. He had no interest in instruments. And my old boss persuaded him to buy a violin instead of a glass artwork of some some sort. And he was so inspired. I'm absolutely convinced his business went down over the next year or two as he was following Gil all over the world playing concerts. Um, And, and in the end, my old boss of course, tried to persuade him to buy many more violins, which he didn't want to do and so he asked Gil to just buy it directly from him. but it was it was such a passionately exciting thing for this man to do and um, in the final concert that Gill played for this society and for with this anonymous gentleman sitting in the back and Gill's right towards the end of the concert, gave a little talk and just thanked the man for buying the violin and letting him borrow it. And he said that the violin changed his life. Without that violin, he would have never been who he was. And I was turning pages for that concert, so I could see this guy. And I swear that by the time he left the room, he had to duck to get under the door because he was just it was so important and meant so much to him knowing that he helped change somebody's life like that. And it's great for everybody.
0: Well, Bruna, I want to thank you uh, for giving us such wonderful insights into a world that I don't think many people have any experience of at all. And it's quite obvious from what you're saying that you, you very much, regard yourself as a as a guardian as a custodian of of these great instruments and uh not just a a cutthroat dealer which i always tell people you could never be because as long as i've known you i've I've always thought of you as one of the most honest people i could uh, i could ever have the pleasure of calling a friend uh and i i truly believe this has been a a really Really fascinating little chat we've had here. But I want to round it off like I do all of these chats on a stick with a point with a killer question. And that for you, my friend, is when you're no longer here, what do you want people to remember you most for?
1: I think. What I would really like would be for people to remember me from my recording of the Dvorak Cello Concerto with the Berlin Philharmonic with Andrew Constantine conducting. But somehow that never got done. <laughs> it, it, so, it ended up
0: on the cutting room floor, that one, didn't you know, I remember uh, well.
1: <laughs> um, the other thought I had was I'd like to be remembered for, for my belly laugh, which I don't have, but I, I intend to develop it because... Um, I, I want to at least go through the rest of life enjoying what there is, and I and I want other people to enjoy what they're doing, to enjoy the seeing beautiful things, hearing beautiful things. Uh, there was one one little additional thing from earlier, I, and I, I was thinking how there have been some great great players who stopped playing, and became fantastic teachers, or did something completely different. And we still live for those moments. For a teacher, when you've been drilling something and the person just doesn't get it, and eventually the light bulb goes on, and those are so, so special. And for me, honestly, I don't remember the, the nitty-gritty of sales. I, I don't remember numbers. But I still remember... How the man who bought the first Strad from me could hardly breathe. I, I was really worried for him. He's just—it was a physical effect that the instrument gave, just extraordinary. And then today, I mean, there's one young guy. I'm showing him a cello that he can't afford. He's got to have it. He just—he's—it's not just a different person. He's—he communicates differently. He's taller when he plays it. Everything about him is is so 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 wonderful, and and I think that's that's the thing. You know, I I don't think you need to have the most expensive instrument in the world to be the most the most fantastic player. Hmm. But you have to keep alive. You have to keep curious. You have to stay interested and passionate. And to share that. And I think, okay, so maybe that's, if I had to say one thing to be remembered, to be inspiring people to share passion.
0: Well, Bruno, I'm sure you've done that on many occasions. So I want to thank you, Bruno Price of Rare Violins of New York. Been a great pleasure. Take care, Bruno. Thank you so much. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point.